Welcome to the Bluegrass Podcast. Thank you for stopping by. Today we're talking with Lelenia Dubois, one of the founders of Canopy Right and the Humboldt Legacy Grace Project, as well as a human rights advocate. We're talking about protecting legacy growers, how to license your genetics safely, and how to build a better cannabis community. California, you know, we're in a total cannabis crisis. We even have scholars creating a new, um, they want to create a new DSM in the medical diagnostic journal of uh, cannabis fatigue, I think is what they're calling it, or weed fatigue, I think is the word that the, the educator told me. Well, I think what he's referring to is in our communities, you know, we have people jumping out of four-story buildings because they've they've been growing cannabis for the majority of their adult life, if not since they were even like 13, 14 years old, some folks. Um, and legalization after medical opened up the doorways for people to feel safe and to like really build homesteads around this plant and support their families around this plant legally through the medical market. Um, Proposition 64, recreational legalization, made all of those players illegal. And and we had 10,000 to 15,000 medical cannabis farms. And, and, And those weren't all medical, but the majority of them fit within the medical parameters um, in California, in the Emerald Triangle alone, pre-legalization. Now we have not even 2000 in all three counties. And that's my concern. And that's why I keep talking to them about with the small farms, they want to talk about, I know with like the micro businesses where it's like three out of the four steps. And I'm like one acre direct to consumer, most value to the farmer best price to the patients just do not complicate it right and and the 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 patients if you do that then the patients get the medicines that were really working you know our legal market is saturated with bullshit the genetics just have no true i mean they get you high whatever you know but the true medicinal values are being washed out um So, yeah, I mean, if I can ever write a letter from my, I can send you my bio bio or my resume or whatever, so you can see my credibility as a human rights commissioner. I was the chair of the human rights commission and did a lot of work. And I love writing letters or supporting other counties and places around this conversation. You know, like the lessons we've learned, our county has had to eliminate taxes. Our governor in the next few months is hopefully going to consider removing an entire tax because of how poorly the industry is functioning. It's a complete failure. There's research studies, actually. UC Berkeley did an amazing research study. One of the leads on it, his name was Michael Polson. And he did, I think it was five years of research around these communities and how is legalization impacting us. And I got to watch one of his lectures. He's a friend of mine. And he's one of what he said in this lecture, and it made me cry, was, you know, all these policies have been written, and maybe we need to stop for a minute and go back and look what they were doing. Because they actually created a really successful industry economic system where where there wasn't a top man where it wasn't top heavy where everybody got paid where everybody was treated equally and it really worked it worked so well they were able to navigate the mainstream system for generations and maybe we need to re-look at that and come back and I think that's true you know if you look at the history of this plant it's been being passed around as a the drug plant, like we can what document in China, right? And it's always worked. It's always gotten there. Um, so I, I just, yeah, if I can help in any way with that conversation, it's frustrating. It's just so, so, you know, I have, uh, what have I done? I have successfully changed 
politics in my community and got legalization. I have launched a magazine. I have four permits, cannabis permits. Um, I have just launched an app, yet I'm actually applying for government jobs right now because it's so bad. <laughs> well, that's the important thing. People like you who know what they're doing, who are in a position with regulations to make a difference, it feels like so many people who do make these regulations or kind of are a part of these cannabis control boards don't actually have any experience like you do. Yeah, well, part of that problem is, and, and I'm running into this right now, is, you know, I've I've been disabled. I was taken out of mainstream. I wasn't raised in mainstream, but I managed to get in there before I got injured. But since 1999, I've pretty much been off the grid, you know, and when you go for these jobs that are coming up in cannabis, you can't qualify because you don't have those B's and those M's around your name. But it has to like really be reconsidered because if, you know, there were a lot of folks in the legacy market are incredibly well educated. They're self-educated. They're self-motivated, which means they can learn really, really fast because of the way our brains work, having to navigate these sort of things our whole lives. Yet we're not, there's not a way to be integrated legitimately without being an advocate, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. that that you impact, but we need people working in the halls of justice with this conversation that understand it. Um, especially in policy building and communities like yours that have roots around this conversation. Absolutely. And that's one of the frustrating things I think about newer states. One of the things that keeps getting added into different legislation is that on these advisory boards in the legislation, it explicitly says no patient advocates can be on the board. Oh, and wow. I don't understand how you can even have the conversation without patient advocates. They're the ones who have gotten it to this point along with patients. Yeah, that's that is um, you they in the state of California. They did. We do. I know of two. They came in through the medical market. They've been growing. They've been in the grow community for many years um, that went on our state advisory board. But I will tell you, they weren't on the first round. You know, um, but as and even now, I believe one of those people who's on that advisory board now told me recently, she was like, you need to go look at government jobs because the state needs to hire folks like you and that they're considering it because this is such a mess. You know, everyone just needs to look at California. We blew it. <laughs> uh. I think every state has blown it in some way or form. It's like in Michigan, reducing the caregiver laws. I thought that was such a brilliant idea where if you were a caregiver for multiple patients and you had overflow, you could have it tested and given to the dispensary to sell for you to cover your costs. And it was working great until certain lobbying groups came in and had them change the law away from it. And it's like, ah, so yeah. do you want to talk a little about your work with the county, maybe to start out since that's sort of and where you come from in cannabis? I know we just took 10, 15 minutes to talk just about the current state of things, but you want to talk a little more about how you got these laws changed and what it was like at the beginning for you? Sure, absolutely. Well, I came to this plant. Um, it's been in my life as long as I can remember. Um, I came into the Emerald Triangle in 1977 is when we moved up here. And a lot of um, impactful events happened that really kind of ingratiated my mother and I into the community of the more alternative counterculture community. Um, we moved into a place where there was a, a commune and an area where there was a commune. Um, so there was a lot of hippies. My mom was a hippie and a lot of logging. So it was like really 
it was loggers and hippies trying to come in and the back to the land movement is, is what we called it. And during that time, things were pretty simple. You know, I can remember being nine, 10 years old and I used to cut, you know, this is way up in the rugged mountains in the Emerald Triangle. You know, it took you four hours at that time to get to a city or town. It wasn't really a city. It was more town. San Francisco was about eight hour drive. Um, so very, very rural. Um, and we, uh, I can remember around nine or 10 years old, cutting everyone's hair up there and the neighbor or our family friend coming to me and saying, Hey, you're really good at those scissors. Do you want to make more money? And I was like, heck yeah. And I started <laughs> trimming weed at that age and, and started learning that, that this plant was a little more than something that I smelled all the time. <laughs> um, and that's when the scary stuff started happening too. more. By the time I was 13, I had witnessed something like 28 sheriff officers at the, at my school. I was the only one at school. I was waiting for my mom to pick me up and they pull up in a bunch of cars and they all get out with their AK 47s and they pile in the van and they're heading up my road. <laughs> I get on the phone and I call my mom and I'm terrified. Cause I, you know, I, I'm 13 mm -hmm. um, and they were on their way to raid our neighbors. Um, you know, and then there's lots of stories like that. My, my parents, my, my stepdad got busted um, when I was 18 and, and it was, it wasn't even his stuff. It was the neighbor's plants that got him. He lost his job around it. And then as a young woman, I was really subjected to things such as kidnapping and, and rape and unable to advocate for myself against those things because I was a child of the drug war, because of all these other things going around in my culture. Um, we didn't feel that the police, and, and to tell you the truth at that time, they wouldn't have. It was actually a law officer's son that raped me, wouldn't have supported me um, if I would have reported those things. So I grew up to feel very oppressed, very subjected, very stigmatized and hid everything that I came from. Um, I, I was very, very ashamed of my cannabis background, of my counterculture community, my back to the landers. I wanted to be Nancy Reagan. I wanted to be as straight and what I thought then was clean as possible as a young woman. And then in 1999, I was in nursing school and I ruptured two discs into my spinal cord and those discs disintegrated and collapsed on themselves and tore and frayed my spinal cord. Um, and my whole world changed. Um, I, I was going to school because I loved science. I, I, I feel safe when I understand things as a child of trauma. And so science really, you know, made me feel safe. <laughs> and now mm -hmm. here I am in a spinal cord injury thinking that science and nursing and, and medicine was going to save me. And eight months later, I ended up in a coma because the medications that I was taking um, prescribed to my doctor almost killed me. And in that experience, my little sisters were still a part of the cannabis community, growing wonderful medicines, and they just begged me to please take my mom's values into consideration, to take the plant's values into consideration. And that's when I really started diving into the plant. And I quickly started learning that it really mattered who grew my medicine. Um, I got some medicine off the free market, and I vomited for three days. Um, that's when I started growing my own medicine. Um, it was it was medically legal in the state of California at that time, and and I could start growing my own medicine and feel safe about it. Um, I started working providing for a dispensary in 2009, 10, and 11, um, and then that is before the coal memo, which was a memo that was written to protect 
medical marijuana. Um, but before that, landlords were being threatened by the feds. Um, and the dispensary that I was providing for asked me to get involved politically. I, you know, I, I, I look normal. I, I don't even know what to say about that though. Not even, I don't know what to, I looked mainstream at the time, you know, I could fit in a room with Nancy Reagan at that time. Um, and so they asked me to start speaking on their behalf at the board of supervisors meeting. And that led into me helping a lot of different dispensaries navigate their own politics. Um, and I started realizing that I didn't hate weed that it was a beautiful medicine and that everything that I hated about this plant was about the drug war and it was about oppression and that I came from an oppressed culture. And I am a justice. I was taught to be a fighter and that did not sit right with me um, as I became a patient. And it put me in a place where I really believed that one day we would see this plant legal, that we needed to see this plant legal. And um, that really just started me on the journey of politics. So that's my beginning story, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's perfect. And where did, so you're working in the dispensaries, you're working in politics. Where did the idea for Canopy Right come in or what made you feel like there was a problem here? I need to find a solution for it. Ah, well, I, I wasn't, you wouldn't call it working um, because as a grower, as a medical grower, it's all nonprofit. So I was providing for a dispensary as a grower um, and work I was, without pay. Right. 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 <laughs> I just want to give myself in trouble. Um, and a lot happened between then we shut the dispensary down in 2012 because of that federal those raids that were happening in between 2012 up until even now, it has been the most insane journey. I can't even, I'm, I'm doing this contest right now as super mom. And I'm telling these stories about my son and I and our adventures. And it's just, it's incredible that what people, patients have gone through the, you know, guns to our heads, robberies that we can't report, you know, what women go through when, when they're in the position with the flower. Um, it was, it was really when I became a public grower and a, a public advocate, what I was subjected to was disgusting and it pissed me off. And in 2014, um, a political organization called California Cannabis Voice was starting a chapter in Humboldt County. And I walked in the room and for the first time in my life, I saw lawyers, I saw doctors, I saw policemen, and I saw pot growers all talking about how to build our community together. And that's when I became chair and president of that organization. And we started writing policies for, we started working with Humboldt County before California became legal to write policies for recreational legalization. And we got a whole bunch of farmers out of the woods to help us. But we got, we, uh, we, we took a right when maybe we should have took a left. Um, and I resigned from the organization and, and looked for ways to help us to move forward. One of the things we were really missing in that conversation, I felt, was that we were looking at the weight of the plant, not the true medical value of the plant. And we weren't really valuing my culture here in the Emerald Triangle. We weren't valuing our intellectual property. I have um, members of my community that have genetics that they've been studying for years around pancreatic cancer, around staph infections. None of those folks were, were none of those, those medicines were getting into this conversation. We were talking about taxes. We were talking about how much would weed sell for? We were talking about how much weed could we get? You know, um, mm -hmm. we were talking about how great our weed was, yet we weren't really honing in on what made our weed great. We weren't really creating policy that 
stopped kids from couch surfing because they're homeless, because when you're in the cannabis market, no one wants to hire you. We weren't um, stopping single moms from not being able to get child support because their partners were in the grow market. You know, we weren't stopping all these issues that were really impacting the culture in the community as a whole. And I was incredibly frustrated. And I saw a pathway through an auction format to develop a way, and this is the beginning of the Legacy Project. The Legacy Project's mission is really to protect, empower, and educate on the legacy culture. Um, and we decided that in order to save the plant and to help protect and save this culture, we had to start with the seed. Because the genetic diversity in these mountains and the medicines in these mountains are so precious to our future. Um, and we weren't looking at that. And so we, uh, I called a few buddies together that are breeders that I'd known for a long time, and they didn't think I was crazy. The problem was is that it costs so much money to protect a cultivar, and a lot of cultivars you can't even go through the patenting process. There's some unique characteristics that have to be had in order to do that process. And most of my community right now can barely scratch two pennies together, let alone spend the dollars and the time that it took to go through that process. And the other part of it was, is nobody, you know, my friend who's been growing this plant for 40 years and has documented a certain strain isolating staff on the skin for 20 years. There was no way for him to prove that to Western minds, to, to mainstream minds. But some beautiful things have happened with legalization despite all the failures, and that is is research. You know, more money has been in, put into research. We now can do DNA, comprehensive DNA sequencing of the plant. You know, we're now looking at really deep, unique, exotic terpene profile. You know, there's just every day we discover something more. In the Legacy Project, we put scientists, technologists, business people, growers, and breeders all on a Zoom once a week for an hour and a half and said, how the heck do we do this? And what we've discovered is that we can add a lot more value to the plant when we're able to show you know, we've discovered a really unique, rare allele in one of our cultivars. Um, it has already increased the interest around it immensely. You know, we've seen really unique cultivar profiles go out the door for 50 grand a cut. Right now, my farmers in my communities are scraping to sell their weed for $300 a pound when it costs about $250 a pound to grow it. Um, with all the taxes and all the hurdles that you have to get through through regulation. So it was a way to kind of see a new market, a new way to sell the plant, to empower these farms to go back to growing small, exotic, and curating and being innovators instead of what regulation created, which was you had to go big or go home. Um, and it gave a way for the real beauty, I, I believe, my belief of these communities, the legacy communities, to show um, the art of what we've been doing. Um, and science has been a really big part of that. So the failure of legalization in our communities, you know, we have government slaying taxes, removing taxes that were created because it's such a failure. Budgets are way off because it's such a failure. Um, but if we can look at the plant more in depth and start seeing its unique values better, which we can, then all of a sudden we can see that, oh, this plant is resistant to HPLV hmm, that's worth a little more. And it mm -hmm. changes the market and it empowers the legacy culture to stay where they're at instead of having to go big home or go home. And 
Canopy Right was is an app that gave us a pathway, a beginning, a foundation to protect ourselves. Um, it's a, a unique blockchain ledger system that we created. Um, the team is our founder is Jeff Hamilton and Kelsey Parker and myself. We're the three owners. And it's an app that we created to help people protect their plant so they could engage in DNA testing without fear of losing that DNA. So they could sell it to another farm to grow without fear of it getting in the market and not being paid for it. Um, and then it's also a, an invoicing system with smart contracts for folks that are in the licensing market to create smart contracts for very low cost compared like 40 to $60 compared to 10 to $20,000 for an attorney. Um, to create these licensing agreements and, and one-time deals that are protected around this system so that we in these communities and, and, you know, legacy communities are worldwide. You know, this plant has been around for as long as we can see as man and they're really worldwide and it gives a way for those communities to go, Hey, big brand, big box. You can't just throw that into the market. I'm going to go test that. And that's my DNA. You owe me. You there's So it creates a new level accountability um, around the plant that we haven't had yet, which allows us as a community to start putting our jewels out there. And I think that's super important because like you said, there are things that just won't be grown unless they're done by small farmers, by people who don't really look at it at the same scale. And there are things that work for medical patients that you could never grow at scale because they don't yield enough, you know, they're temperamental, whatever it happens to be, but have incredible value for medical patients and can work out on a small scale. So I'm glad to hear that you're protecting these things that, like you said, have medical value for these select cases. Do you think that in this conversation at all with like protecting medical patients, there's ever going to come a point where you run up against cultivar specific products versus cannabinoid and chemical profiles or like a manufactured Absolutely. product? Uh, absolutely. Well, I think that's like we believe um, everyone at the Legacy Project, everyone at Canopy, right? I think I can say this, that we believe the future is, you know, first of all, science is showing the value of whole plant medicine every day. We're moving more towards the knowledge that nature gives us, provides us what we need when we utilize her with wisdom and not annihilate her. And this plant is really helping us to see this. And so when you look at the plant, there's so many things that impact the outcome of that medicine. You know, you, I could give you a train wreck clone or we'll use something everybody knows. I could give you an OG clone and I could have an OG clone and my clone could be really good for pain and your clone could be really good for nausea or inflammation or something because you could have way more CBD in your clone than my clone just because of either your process or your environment. Um, there's like so many variables that impact that outcome. So you know, your process is so many things, your nutrients, your air quality, your soil quality, or if you're using soil, all of those things impact that medicinal value. They impact the terpene levels. They impact the cannabinoid values. Um, you know, when we start getting into things like esters and amino acids and all those things, it's that process and that environment that make that medicine. So as we start looking at the plant more scientifically, and we already, I've already worked with companies that are doing this, um, that it's like, okay, I'll, I'll give one for an example that's coming out in a few different states. It's called Peaceful Easy Feeling. It's a license agreement with the Eagles song. 
And they needed pre-rolls that gave you that peaceful, easy feeling, not the hype, not the couch lock, not the, you know, oh, you know, the, the energy. They wanted that old 70s peaceful, easy feeling. And so they were looking for a profile that was below 14% THC with a high myrcene terpene. And at the time, that was incredibly hard to find in the market because everybody was pushing THC. But they knew in order to grab those consumers, they needed those consumers to be loyal. In order for those consumers to be loyal, those consumers needed to go back to those pre-rolls and get that peaceful, easy living every time. And the only way, the, the most secure way this company knew that they were going to be able to do that is if they secured genetics and they were able to control those genetics and, and control how they were grown so they could, at the best of nature's ability, ensure that same peaceful, easy outcome, you know, that same profile every time. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with a market um, across most of the globe that's teenagers or kindergartners, you know, and kindergartners like Kool-Aid, teenagers mm -hmm. like wine coolers, you know, um, me, I can't drink anything if it's not top shelf. Cause I don't feel good afterwards, but you know what? I did like wine coolers at one time. And so right now people are, are going to the stores and they're buying things because of the hype. Um, you know, they're, that, that's primarily, it's like they have faith in that, right? You know, they're experimenting with different things, maybe the name. Um, but soon, and we're already seeing this this year in California, really the most I've seen it this year, it's pretty incredible. But, you know, soon people across the globe are going to be going, Aunt, no, wait a second. I heard about awesomeine. I know that's going to really help me with this. I need something with awesomeine in it. You know, that's what I need or that's what I really like. That makes me feel good. And people, consumers, patients, doctors are going to start looking to the plant going, hey, how much CBT is in that? You know, I want to use that for glaucoma. I want to, you know, like they're going to start looking at the plant like that. And, and that is when I think the genetic diversity and the legacy IP around the plant, because those processes are so important, is going to exponentiate in value. So has there, so are you all exclusive to California? But I think you're in multiple states now, right? So the legacy project is is well the legacy project we have members actually across the globe anyone can join i'd love to have you join elijah and check us out um we're actually mm. doing a live town hall meeting on um i believe it's it's the friday after um 420 i think it's april 28th um, and we're going to talk about the skunk one with the unique allele you know um Kevin McKernan of Medicinal Genomics has done some amazing work with the hops, with the hops um, latent viral, the the hops viroid. Well, I'm I'm dyslexic. You know what I'm saying. Yep. Um, and a lot, and and some of that work was done through the group. Um, he's going to come on and talk about that and talk about the unique characteristics of the skunk one. Um, we're launching a show where Kevin Jodry, he's going to be our host on U.S. Weed Channel. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but we're going to do this town hall meeting just to kind of answer more questions about what we're about and try to be more transparent. Um, and that's really focused on these communities in the Emerald Triangle um, but again, we have people from all over the world because the conversation, you know, in Morocco, they're dealing with the same, same issues, you know, around their legacy communities with deep legacies. And then Canopy Right, the, the app is available now. Anybody anywhere in the world that cannabis is not a crime, like China, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, cause we don't, we're not building this to get people in trouble. We're building this to create a pathway for people in the future of legalization. Um, but anywhere in the world that it's medically recreationally not prohibited, um, people can sign up as a home grower and use it like a security safe deposit box. The DNA never leaves your hands. Um, what you do is we, we created an amazing, very simple timestamp system where the DNA, your leaves stay in your freezer, but we create a time capsule that links them to the blockchain with the data that you supply to match it. We never have access to your data. Uh, that's part of what makes this system so unique is we cannot being, I was a chair of the Human Rights Commission and I wrote the County Human Trafficking Fund and I'm very sensitive about data trafficking. I feel like it's it's very much a new form of human trafficking. <laughs> so we will not be able to harvest people's data um, at all. We cannot. We built the system so we could not. Um, and anyone can use that in a legal space right now. Um, and then if you're in a licensed marketplace where you can commercialize cannabis. Um, right now, we, we've we just integrated with Metric, but we look forward to integrating with other track and trace companies. Um, but we are able to offer you the ability to do those licensing agreements, which we see is really the wave of the future around genetics. With somebody who maybe has been a part of other maybe like genetic sourcing projects how is your all's different why should they trust you all versus maybe these legacy farmers who've heard this story in the past from other people or that they were <laughs> going to be protected like what makes you all unique and a source that they can trust i know you've gone through all the reasons but for real no like dude that's like the biggest Fear, right? Like that's what I was running around for years going, okay, we can't even begin to have this conversation because no one can really be protected. There's like, you know, it's gone. Once it's out the door, it's gone. So one of the things that really makes us different is the way that the system was designed. Um, it is going through the patenting process right now because we designed a system that we as the administrators, the owners of it cannot access your data unless you make it public. So you, you know, you put your COAs in there, you put your grow diaries in there, you put your stories in there and we can never access that unless you choose to show it off on the marketplace. The other part that makes us really unique and shows part of the ingenious behind our founder, Jeff Hamilton, is the way we time capsule your DNA. You know, most folks, and one of the things that did happen in the industry, which impacted my community immensely, was getting that DNA with no traceability or accountability, and then you can go and make whatever you want out of it. Um, well, the system that we've designed is really simple, free. Um, and what it is, is you take, you take, um, you know, you take five, say five families, you want enough, you want to be able to withdraw Mary stem from it because you need the Mary stem for DNA. Um, and you put them in a freezer bag and you get some evidence bags, which we have a link you can order online. You put them in the evidence bag. Then you go into our system and it'll walk you through these steps. We we ask you to put the cult of our name in. Um, we ask you, you know, if you're the original breeder, we ask you the the, the male and, and female parent lineage. Um, if you're not the original breeder, we ask who there was. And, and maybe that person doesn't want to be mentioned and that's okay. You put unknown or, or you know, anonymous. But we want to give everybody the opportunity to honor each other. Um, and then the system takes all that information that you put in and it punches out a QR code that you print out 
you put into that evidence bag, you seal the evidence bag, and it uploads onto the blockchain and you put those leaves in your system. So we, as Canopy Right, don't ever, I mean, I touch people's DNA because I'm out on the farms all the time, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I... We as a we do not touch your DNA. You right now, Elijah, could go do this system and be in that time cancel and start that chain of accountability around your genetics without even seeing me. Um, and without your plant leaving your home. So how does Canopy Right make this sustainable or where do you all come in? Not to be like, what's your all's cut? But like, is this funded by the Legacy Project? Is this you all take a percentage of the contracts? Where do you all fit into this as a business to keep it sustainable and keep it going? So the Legacy Project and Canopy Right are two different things. The Legacy Project is a 100% volunteer group. Um, I do have, I, I am part of a nonprofit called the Ink People. Um, and it's, we're Humboldt Grace and it's the Humboldt Grace Legacy Project. That is every person that has participated in that has done so through heart and passion. Um, all the value we've gotten in that group, it's because all the players have brought their value to the table. Um, Canopy Right is a business. And it is just one piece of how the how we're able to host the Legacy Project Project Auction, um, and how we make our money is on the front end. You know, we don't make money from the Legacy Growers who can't access the le legal marketplace through us. We give them a free place to protect their stuff and to show it off. That's all we do. Um, but. Um, for the, the license growers, again, we, we have those contracts. I'm sorry, I just got distracted. Elijah, can you remind me of the question? Absolutely. So it was just with Canopy, right? How do you all make money or fund this to keep it ah, sustainable? That's right. That's what I was going. So where we make money is when the breeder makes money. So if you're in the licensed market, then... A, a buyer, they come into Canopy, right? And they look at your stuff and they go, oh, I want to do a contract. Well, they pay a one-time fee for that contract, 40 to $60, depending on the complexity of the contract. And then we track that through metric and we charge a 3% invoicing fee on top of that contract fee that doesn't come off the breeder's negotiated price, it's incorporated into the sale of, of the cultivars. So we've worked really hard to design it. So we really are authentically empowering the legacy culture and not, for lack of a better word right now, feeding ourselves off the legacy culture when, when you know, folks aren't eating so well right now. And I think that's important too, having this conversation around all right, how does everybody eat? How do we make this kind of like you're talking about back to the land, homesteaders, or even just small farmers in general? How do we let people make a living off of this, not just make millions? Yeah, you know, well, how, how we did it. It's not even like, how do we? It's like we did it. We were doing it. You know, the back to the land movement wasn't about growing weed. It was about coming back to nature and living within nature's values, living indigenously, really bringing, taking on indigenous ways to support ourselves again as white man. So none of us, no one that I grew up with in that era in my community like we didn't need fancy cars. We didn't go on vacations, man. We loved our rivers and our hills too much. You know, that mm -hmm. it wasn't the focus. The focus was, hey, are we going to be okay? And if my neighbor isn't okay, I'm not okay. And I'll give you an, you know, it, it, like we have roads closed. We were, we were isolated on, in our community one, one year for a couple months and we were running out of firewood. Well, we didn't care for our neighbor too much because he grew big and it just 
you know, it made everybody nervous. But when, when that landslide happened, our neighbor is the reason our house stayed warm. You know, we shared, we supported each other. It wasn't about how much I got. It's about how good are we moving forward? Um, and in rural communities, one of the, the most beautiful gifts of a rural community is that we know that, right? Like you guys have that too, I'm sure. Like we know like your neighbor, you, I, I won't say the naughty word, but we say this, we have this saying is you don't poop uphill. Mm -hmm. everybody drinks it right it impacts everybody and and it, the 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 spirit of that the core values of what created the cannabis industry haven't been a part of building the new industry and we spoke about this earlier you know these communities supported each other we didn't even talk about the homelessness issues that the cannabis that, that the drug wars created. We haven't talked about the trauma issues the drug wars created. You know, we haven't focused on any of those issues as we build policy. Um, and I feel strongly that we need to look back, like Michael Polson's research that I mentioned at UC Berkeley, to how did we build this industry? How did we get there? And what are we missing to get us there? And I think one of the biggest things we're missing is that spirit, those core values of what brought us here in the first place. And one of those was not king of the hill, but if you're not paid, then I'm not okay either. And some of that was because of the oppression. You know, you you didn't want to make anybody mad, but it created a truly equitable system. And we've been talking about a lot of serious topics that are meaningful. What is a nice surprise that's come out of this project, either the Legacy Project or Canopy Right as an app? What's something that you were not expecting that's happened on your journey with these two projects? Hmm. Gosh, a lot. <laughs> um, I think one thing I'll say about it, that as a single woman and mom in this journey, I have been subjugated to a lot of horrific things. I have been, um, yeah, undervalued. Uh, co-opted, um, just not okay stuff. And when I finally said and started following my heart and my vision and started building the Legacy Project, the people that have come to the table, the people that still come to the table, the diversity of the project the dedication of that project, how all these players who are very busy, you know, <laughs> like these are not folks who just sit around all day. They come and they show up every week just to connect and share resources and share ideas and ensure that these cultures do have something. Um, and with this industry being so divisive and so capitalistic, as we've talked a lot about, the fact that this group has worked together for two and a half years and succeeded. You know, we, we, we were, now we're rolling it out. We figured it out. We wrote a white paper about it. Now we're rolling it out, you know, um, as a collaborative group where really we're in there as equals. I'm, I'm the seed in a sense, or I'm the glue in a sense, you know, I keep us moving forward. I do the footwork, but it's the group that makes, brings the ideas, brings the resources and makes it happen. And I am just so incredibly proud at how diverse that group is and how loving our, our core, our core values are love and grace. You can't come to the table if you don't come in the door loving and gracefully. And, and we've had some issues around that. And I am very strict about that. Um, but with those being our core values, we don't have any problems. And it's just been incredible. My brothers in this 
war who have come to the table for me, like Marty Yip, who donated the skunk, and Kevin Jodry, who's a rock star. And I mean, I could go on and on. I'm just, I just, the collaboration, the brother and sisterhood that we have, I, I just, that is, it makes my heart sing. Um, and then with Canopy Right, it's really similar. You know, Jeff, as a founder, it's been incredible to work with him and his ability to want to build in that same manner. And he listens to me. You know, I when I came to the table, um, part of Canopy Right had already been built. Um, but because of the an incident that a lot of breeders know about in the industry that happened. I, I really wasn't willing to play the game with just anybody. And I had some pretty like hard rules that I thought he was going to say no to. And one of them was that it had to be accessible to my community. And he did one better than me in that he made it free to all breeders, you know, to, to all creators. Mm -hmm. um, the other one was that they needed to be protected, that we could not be, able to get their data and that they needed to be able to, if their data was public and being shared, they needed to be able to remove that. If we were to do ever sell to a big bad wolf or, you know, people were to not trust our leadership. I wanted people to have a choice and he implemented those two things. Um, and, and, and basically gave me, a position and ownership of the company. That was the other thing um, he did. And I've, I've created a lot of things out there it, it, in this industry in the past seven years, and I've never been paid or honored on my contracts for any of it. One contract actually has been honored. Um, and it was a non-cannabis company. And Jeff has done nothing but honor what he's promised me. And I have so much respect for that. And it's really helped me grow as a leader and heal some of my distrust of folks as I move forward. Um, and, and those two things are some of the most important things to me. And in both instances, they just warm my heart and uh, make me very, very, very proud to be a part of it all. That's good to hear, too, that there are still places where you can rely on people and that there are still people in this industry who do want to see just everyone succeed. Because I think like you're talking about, there have been a lot of people who've left because they get fatigued, like with the contracts again and again, you don't get what was promised. And there's not really any inclination to get it to you. So I'm glad to hear that they like kind of like you said, doing you one better. There are people who aren't just working with you, but working just as hard. Well, I just wanted to say something about that, especially because I'm a woman and I know there's a lot of women out there looking to this plant to in entrepreneurs. There's something that I had to learn within myself and as a traumatized you know, drug war survivor. Um, and that was, I had to learn to value myself and to trust myself, you know, being around this plant my whole life, my intuition is amazing. And I have a lot of value to bring to the table. And as soon as I started turning that around and, and valuing what I had to bring to the table, it helped me create boundaries that demanded the respect um, and that was, a, I learned that really the hard way. Um, and, and it's something that when we've been around this plant a long time, we feel a little shame. And I think we need to know that we're beautiful and amazing. We're the Einsteins of the future, um, around this amazing medicine and, and stand up straight uh, so people know that if they violate our contracts, that there's going to be accountability afterwards. And accountability doesn't necessarily mean you get a lawyer. There's a lot of account public accountability in this industry. You know, having a child who also works with you or having family, do you want to talk about that at all? Because Jessie Lynn, who is a nurse, was on last week and she works with her son, Rose. And I always love hearing stories about families that either 
consume together or grow together or are just in this together, because I think that's a face that people don't really get to see as often. And like we're talking about is such an integral part of this. Oh, I would love to, you know, I've just started, I think I mentioned earlier, I entered this mainstream contest called the super mom contest and I probably won't win only because, I mean, not only because I'm mean, sure there's lots of reasons I won't win. I don't have that many followers, first of all, but okay, I before you go it. on, where can they vote for you? Oh, it, uh, it's it. I gosh, it's at www.supermom.com. And then my name backslash Lelania. Dubois, and you can go onto my Instagram, Dubois, and I'm posting little reels of my son, and I'm starting to tell the story. Um, because, you know, when you're going through all this stuff, Elijah, and you're just trying to freaking survive. I mean, I have a spinal cord injury. I, I'm technically a paraplegic, and I had my son after that injury. So survival has been a struggle through all that. When I first had, you know, he's the reason I started growing. I mean, it's just so crazy because I was, I was a patient, you know, I, I was, but I wasn't, I still couldn't get past all my own stigmatization from my experience and, and go, okay, I'm going to grow. Um, I just couldn't do it. And then when he, right two days before he was born, a friend who was growing needed some help on his 215 garden. And I helped him in an, an emergency situation that was kind of gnarly. And he came back a week after I had my son. And I, I had, I was living in a trailer that was condemned pretty much. We don't condemn places up here really, but it was, but my landlord was letting me live there for free. Cause I had no money coming, nothing, no social. I, I was fighting for my social security. I was one year out of an experimental back surgery. Um, it was just a really crazy time. And this friend came back and said, look, I really know you need help. I'm going to set you up with an indoor grow. And he did. And it that happened the week after I had my son and that indoor grow helped get me from the trailer. I mean, mice at night, we would only sleep in the living room because mice at night were falling out of the ceiling of the trailer. Um, because of my back injury, I couldn't get up with him in a lane. So I had to sleep in an easy chair um, or I wouldn't have, couldn't get up to help him. Um, it was a very interesting time. And that plant is the only reason, is the main reason we were able to get out of that situation and rise up. Um, I started providing for the dispensary then. Um, it, it helped me, you know, get through. Um, and he, it was all because of him. And so then, you know, me being disabled and it, I had to grow it right in my house. It was, I mean, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but you know, he had to be a part of it. The whole mm -hmm. journey, you know, he's seen me smoke it. He, he, when he was like four years old, he would go, mom, I think you need some medicine because he could see how much pain I was in. Um, so for him, it's really been just, there's just, he knows no differently. And it was going pretty smoothly until I started getting involved politically. And, and then it's when it got crazy. I got blackmailed in 2010 and when it was medically legal, uh, but. Holy I cow. Had, so what, if you can, what is that story? Uh, well, I, I had a, a medical grow, um, did it. I, Fully, I had PG&E permits. I did it all right. I hired a contractor. I had five patients. Um, and the persons who land I had rented, I actually had paid their mortgage for a year. The only reason they owned the house was because of what I had done for them. And on my first grow, the apprentice and the owner of the land called the cops. He said, if you don't pay me $10,000 today, and I, I didn't have a, 
you know, people think, oh, growing weed, you have tons of money. I didn't play that game. I played the medical game. So I wasn't like hoofing pounds out the back door. Mm -hmm. Um, But he decided he was going to blackmail me. And I said, I'm legal. Like, dude, you can't like do whatever you got to do. And he did. He called the cops. The cops came in. Uh, They left a card. I came. The guy told me there there's a warrant out for your arrest. I went home and couldn't sleep that night. Two o'clock in the morning, I called my sisters and I said, I'm bringing Jasper. He was, I think, around four at the time. I'm bringing Jasper to you. I might go to jail tomorrow. And I drove into the police station that morning and said, hey, I'm the owner of yada, yada, yada. And he looked at me and goes, oh, you're a girl. And he goes, why are you Why are you spending so much money on growing weed anyways? He actually said, I have one question for you. Why are you spending so much money on growing weed when we have all these medical dispensaries? And I go, well, you know better than me how people grow weed. I go, I can't, I grow medicine. I can't have pesticides. I can't have bugs. I have to know my medicine is really clean. And he patted me on the back and said, go get the first permit in the city. And my lawyer said, uh, no, don't, because if this guy has pictures of your kids or his girlfriend's kids who lived in the house, you're going to lose your kids for a minimum of two years. And so I packed up 350 plants and all the equipment to grow those 350 plants in a semi-U-Haul and drove 10 hours and set up in another town. Oh, my um, God. And in that town, I ended up getting robbed, putting gum put in my head. We were homeless for quite a few years. And within two years, I said, screw this, screw the community. And I moved to Utah for a few years, just gave it up, wanted to raise my son, and then came back um, a year before we started talking about legalization. Um, and and within that year, dove into legalization because of all the horrible things that had happened to me with my son. I mean, and that's just some of it. But I was so pissed off that as a, I was a person that people were supposed to help. I was a sick mom with a kid. Those were who I was taught. Those are the people that you help, not the people that you take advantage of and hurt. And um, it really is what made me a proponent of legalization. And he has been through it every step of the way. He doesn't remember the gun to my head, but he was sitting in my car when it happened right there. You know, he doesn't, he thinks the times that we were homeless were adventures, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he, you know, he, these past few years for legalization, you know, he's paid the price for me being afraid, me being stressed, you know, all those things. Um, but he's also now 17. Uh, he'll be 18 in September. And he's also one of the most kind and compassionate humans um, you'll ever meet. That is thank you for sharing that story too because like you're talking about with the dangers of growing plants and having kids just having the conversation is nerve-wracking and thank you for putting that out there because it helps other people feel comfortable talking about it and being open about it when you ask me the question of um what what you know, what are the good things about all this after all the bad things? And that's, that's one of the best things about legalization is I don't have to be afraid for my son and I as a patient, um, you know, going through that when I was that night, when I was trying to decide what to do, when I thought there was a warrant out for my arrest, it was like, well, what do I do? And I called a friend of mine who was a reporter because he read all these articles And he said, what you do is you call me first, because if they put you in jail, we're going to tell your story because you are a very legitimate patient and that should not be happening. Um, But now it's not a problem. Now I can tell you about it and all your people that are going to listen to this in Kentucky about it and and Mm -hmm. don't feel shame. I feel so proud 
of my son and myself for navigating this and not, you know, dealing meth and coke. You know, there's just so many other ways we could have gone, but we're still hanging in there. You know, canopy rights gonna get funded. Um, I'm gonna get consulting. Get you know, it's just it's gonna. It we're we're doing it, and he is my primary fuel. <laughs> and if someone wants to find the Legacy Project or Canopy Right or wants to follow you on social media, where can they find that? Well, you can find more information about the Legacy Project at www.humboldtgrace.org. Um, and you'll see the Legacy Project is one of the projects we're doing. And then you can you can register for Canopy Right at www.canopyright.com. Um, and you can find out more information about Canopy Right at www.canopyright.info. And then all those names on social media, you can find our Instagram and Facebooks. And then you can find me. I'm Lelania Dubois, L-E-L-E-H-N-I-A. And on Instagram, it's dot, it's Lelania dot Lele, L-E-L-E dot, my last name, Dubois, D-U-B-O-I-S. And same stuff on Facebook and, and LinkedIn. <laughs> Well, Anya, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Elijah. I, I, I appreciate um, getting to share all that with you. That was a lot of fun, and I look forward to more. I look forward to bringing the Legacy Project on and the founders of Canopy Right. Thank you for listening. If you're a bluegrass country or singer-songwriter, send in your submissions. We feature one song per episode and would love to play yours. Also, did you know that our store is up and available? Grab a set of our new bluegrass banjo stickers, die cut and made of long-lasting vinyl, so that you can help put the grass back in the bluegrass. Available on bluegrasscannabis.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are at bluegrass underscore cannabis on Instagram, at bluegrass hemp on Facebook, at Bluegrass Cannabis on TikTok, and at Bluegrass Canna on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe and never miss an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. We're available on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much for listening and stopping by the Bluegrass Podcast. Old-fashioned, all-natural, Kentucky Bluegrass. <laughs>